This is Speaking Easy Theology with Chris Green. We're back, continuing our conversation on Colossians, but this time I am thrilled to say that we have some dear friends and friends of the podcast with us, Dr. David Harvey, Father Bill D'Antriano. Uh, it's it's good to see you guys. Glad that you're here. And of course, since Chris is a bit closer to me now, we're actually recording this together. I'm in the, we're sitting in his uh, kitchen. So it should be, should be a fun time. Good to see you guys. You as well. You as well. Um, let's let's start off, um, David. Since Paul is your area of expertise, I wonder if you might start us off just with some uh, just some general thoughts on the book. The, the the problem always with being billed as an expert in Paul is actually being an expert in Paul means that you're just aware of how little you know about Paul. <laughs> and, and having had that thing, like my I worked on Galatians and people say, oh, you're an expert in Galatians because that must be easy because it's quite short, right? And, uh, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's how it works. That's, that's how it works. Um, I was actually laughing as I was listening to y'all talk yesterday because my my work in Paul was predominantly in, in sort of context and background. And, and the sort of work that I do is to is to structure imaginative backgrounds in the social context of Paul and and use that to sort of basically create imaginative interpretations of the text. So mm. we would work uh, using house church models. We would try and imagine who would be in a house church, right? Because often when we read the text, we imagine it's written to modern 21st century white men. And uh, and so we would build and construct. Uh, I worked with Peter Oakes at Manchester. We used Pompeii as a model uh, because there's so much data about houses in Pompeii. We would use that data to sort of construct imaginative house churches in, in one context and then read the text through those lenses. So I was super pumped yesterday when, when I was listening to the podcast and you guys were like, yeah, we don't want to get into all of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm like, I feel really ready for this conversation. Um, but one of the challenges, and I actually think why it's wise to think the way that you're thinking, particularly as we're thinking about how we preach a text like this and how we proclaim uh, the gospel as it's, as it's found in this text, is that Colossians is complex because of this sub-narrative about, is, did Paul actually write it? <laughs> and, um, and, and as a result, you get these multiple layered, I think sometimes unhelpful, conversations, uh, because some people would just dismiss any attempts to set Colossians in context, because, well, how could we even know the context? Because it it wasn't written by Paul. And I think there's all sorts of premises that that you want to think about in that process. And that's not what we really, I I assume we don't want to get into that in, in this episode. But I think it's worth, as a preacher, if I can say this, I think it's worth as a preacher expressing cognizance of this debate. Because what I've noticed is people often dip their toes. Uh, you know, you announce, hey, we're going to do a study on, on Colossians. And so people that want to do that study with you jump into the commentaries and get bombarded with this, this mm-hmm. argument about did Paul write Colossians? Did Paul not write Colossians? 
But oftentimes, scholars talk quite confidently about this, which creates then in the, in the right mind of the casual reader, oh, Paul didn't write Colossians. Uh, and then they're listening to you preach on this, but the narrative that's ticking away behind their head is about Paul didn't even write this. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's worth developing a sort of response as a preacher that you are aware of this particular debate and you have a, a succinct view on it. And my succinct view on it, it, for what it's worth, is I don't think it's a very helpful debate. Uh, people for, you know, the early church, which were very attuned to questions of authenticity. And this is one of the things that frustrates me is we assume all those, those old folks back then, they didn't, I know that doesn't happen on this podcast, but you hear it in popular literature. They, they didn't care about these things. They didn't know about these things, you know, read the Muratorian fragment and they cared about fakes and they cared about authenticity and they tracked this. So, and also most of the arguments that we build around the authenticity of Colossians are are really, I find are substantially weak, right? Arguments about language choices and structures and all that. Which is to say, when I read Colossians, what I find fascinating is how much it reminds me of Galatians. It feels like a, Gal- a summary text of Galatians, which of course some people would see then has huge resonance to something like Romans, the sort of heart of Pauline theology. Colossians feels to me like a summary of, of a lot of Galatian themes, with a sort of notion towards popular culture rather than than the kind of Jewish argument around circumcision and uncircumcision. Paul seems to be concerned about issues of empire and issues of uh, of, of imperialism and, and issues of, of almost Roman, you know, paganism at some level. Mm-hmm. But what I think, and this is the last thing I'll say on this because you've heard enough from me, but the problem I think we have with Paul is we assume that Paul is a theologian primarily. And therefore, we begin at the beginning of Paul's letters. And there's so much theological content that I think we're out of energy by the time we get through it, that we miss that what Paul's actually then getting to is ethical and pastoral advice. He wants you to do something differently. He wants you to to behave differently. He doesn't simply want you to think differently. And when you come to Colossians, I think, as an ethical text, as a text that has moral direction to it that is rooted in the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection, you realize that Paul's letters have remarkable coherence. Right? He's just choosing different theological routes to get to a point, which is why I was really excited to hear you start at the end, because I think that is what we have to do at Paul. It helps us see him more coherently. Uh, so anyway, that was a lot. Forgive me. Uh, but there. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. Thanks, man. Bill, did, did you have reflections on our first conversation? I know you had a chance to hear it. Anything you wanted to comment on? Yes. So apparently I'm the expert in reflective thoughts on stuff that you and Chris have said, <laughs> which I think is funny. I'm not an expert in anything else other than plagiarizing you, the three of you guys. So thank you. And I think my church thanks you for giving me all of my content that I need on a regular basis. Also, I'm an expert in Yankee candles. You're describing this in this analogy. Yeah, yeah what, I'm what trying is, to figure out because I think we're all plagiarizing off each other. So, who is actually starting these themes? <laughs> I'm sorry if anybody's tried to plagiarize off of me. My sincerest apologies to you and whoever was listening. No, I um, 
I really appreciated the conversation you guys had about speech being seasoned and really getting into the uh, getting into the details of the way that Paul or the author of this letter um, is speaking to people. And I, I think it just struck me um, with all of the information present that you spent a lot of time on how he speaks and uh, to sort of just be like a little pithy at church a few weeks ago. I was actually talking about this, not, not from this letter, but talking about the way that our speech should and our intentions behind it should be priestly. And so I, I used the acronym of CPR and I talked about like a, a, a toxic, CPR would be when we approach people to control, persuade, and resolve. And so we, we, we see people and we say, like, they're, they're not living right. And so we need to control, we need to try to persuade, and we need to try to resolve their issues for them. And I compared that to a priestly uh, acronym. And I, it was a lot of what you guys were talking about. I talked about how with Jesus, it's often community. It's he has a place for people. It's proclamation. And then this is the one I wanted to comment on. It's restraint. So much of what is amazing about the work of Christ and now even in his uh, disciples and apostles is what they don't say. And I love that you guys were talking about, you know, not saying everything that there is to say to a person on a subject in any given moment. And I just I feel like restraint is one of the ways that we hold space in somebody else's life for them to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And so I, I appreciated that conversation. And um, one of the things that Eugene Peterson says about this letter, he says, Paul writes with energies. He writes with the energy of considerate love. He exhibits what Christians have come to appreciate the wedding of a brilliant and uncompromising intellect with a heart that is warmly and wonderfully kind. And I just, I thought that the way that he approaches these subjects in all, in all the letters, the way that these letters are approached, the way that these churches are approached, they're approached with such dignity and respect. And it was, it was really, it was healthy to hear you guys really get into the, especially the beginnings of how he, speaks to people. Like I just, it, it skips by us. Sometimes we even use it as like a catchphrase, but when he opens his letters with the phrase grace and peace, I just yeah. think that if we could just embody what it means, like, Hey, we have some things to talk about. We're going to get into some stuff. There may even be some gentle rebuke and exhortation here, but before we do anything, grace and peace, you know, we're going to be flexible with each other and we're going to assure each other that we're good. Our relationship is good. Now is going to be good after this. And everything we're talking about is because we're good. It's what Jesus did, you know, on Easter Sunday evening when he walks in and before he says anything, he says, peace be with you. Before we get into all the weirdness of you seeing me right now, I want you to know that we're good. And like how much that must settle in a person to know that there's stuff that, they, that needs to be addressed, but to know first that the person addressing it is putting in the energy to let you know that this is all happening because we're good. Mm -hmm. 
because there's a relationship here that isn't contingent on how well this conversation goes. So there's no controlling and there's no persuading. There's community, there's prayer, and there's restraint. So for me, like that was, it was, it was exciting and fun. I, I like the vibe that comes from a conversation about the way that we speak to people. That, that was great. Well, I think with that, let's, let's uh, take a cue then, Bill, from your, from your last point, and let's just start right off with, um, with, with the first few verses here of, of this letter. I'm, reading, I'm using the NRSV. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Um, do we want to say anything there or just keep keep rolling and see see what else emerges? Well, you always want to say something about Paul's introductions. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I mean that in terms of even if we don't say anything about this introduction, pay attention to how Paul opens and closes his letters. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so like to double down on Chris's point, uh, last time the endings are important, but, but the starts are important as well. And, but they often sound very similar, but I, it's actually in their similarities that helps you spot what's different that often sets up, Oh, something's going on here. You know, again, Galatians is your classic example. You know, he's defending his apostolic status before he's even out of the, you know, the starting blocks, like Paul an apostle, but not, not from humans. Right. Uh, and, and so it, and actually you'll find that that starts to, as the letter goes on, okay, this is a thing here. This is a question about that, that, that's floating around in here. So, so notice, and, and the NRSV, does split this up a little bit, but it, it literally Paul to those in Colossae, holy and faithful, right? Uh, you know, Hagios Kaipistois is that you know, so, so these the saints and the but they're also faithful. So again, you spot across Paul's letters that's a new piece, right? We we often get saints, but these saints get this addition of faithful again, just to, to make the point for one last time. If you were trying to fake up a Pauline letter, don't break with his more regular format, right? Um, that 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 would be unusual. But here we see if, if this is Paul, he's happy to play with it a little bit. But what I think that does is it highlights we, his attitude and thinking about these people, and, and and actually and again speaking that over a people. You're not just holy, but by I mean that's something that God's done for you. You're also faithful. Which so there's this little bit of a two way blessing over these over these people. He's not just blessing them with what God has done, but their you know their faithfulness. Uh, I mean, do, do you see how you see how he's building that? And I think it's a gorgeous little little insight into how he thinks about these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that uh, we kind of briefly played around with and in my small group this last week was Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, Mm -hmm. and just sort of imagining potentially the role or roles that, that Timothy has here, right? The kind of like, well, maybe it's just a sort of general association and Paul's kind of giving a kind of weight to what Timothy's doing. Um, You know, but I don't know. What if Timothy has the weight in this community? (laughs) 
and Paul's kind of, <laughs> you know, tacking him on here or just a sort of, you know, more straightforward. Well, there's, you know, maybe issues of, of uh, or a matter rather of co-authorship here, mm. something like that. Again, I don't, we don't need to get bogged down in that. Just interesting to think about. Mm. I think it's crazy. Like the, the church culture I grew up in, uh, very fundamentalist church culture. Like this is just, this introduction is absolutely, it's not mind blowing to me. Like intellectually, it's just relationally. It's nothing like we I've ever experienced from somebody in authority. Like in, in one felt swoop you have, he's addressing his church and he's already calling the people faithful before he addresses them. <laughs> he's already calling them holy before he addresses them. He's saying that the grace and peace I'm offering you is coming from God the Father. So he's he's expressing that they're in right standing with the Lord. He's including Timothy in a way that takes attention off of him and puts it on somebody else. Like This is none of the ways that I, I remember being addressed by, quote unquote, the set gift or the spiritual authority. It's like, we'll, we'll be good. We'll be faithful and holy if we obey all the things that are about to be addressed in this letter. And we'll get that grace and peace from God and that right standing once we fix these issues that we have. It's just in two verses. It's so Chris, me and you were talking about this on the phone, like just the, the, the nurturing quality of Jesus where he goes to prepare a place and he prepares a home and he makes things ready for us. Even just reading Genesis one, by the time Adam and Eve show up, they're in a prepared place it just seems that like Paul is letting the Colossians know you are you are more at home with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit than you can realize here. And I just think like I, I would listen to a person who speaks that way at the beginning of a conversation. Like if they need to address things in my life and they're coming to me with that sort of hospitality, that sort of offering of vocabulary and tone and tenor that would make me want to hear what that person has to say. That would make it easy for me to lay down any defenses and listen to what that person has to say. Yeah. I think it's worth commenting here on what we might call the, the psychological non, the non anxiety that's necessary or the yeah. lack of interest that's necessary to speak in that way. Like we're, we're talking, we're, we're, we're expressing gratitude for the fact that Paul talks like this. But I, I think we'd be remiss not to point to the ways in which this is possible in part because it's a letter. There, there's a passage in, in Corinthians, Second Corinthians, where Paul is talking about the, the criticism he gets from the his opponents, the people who are questioning kind of his his authority or his the worthwhileness of, of following Paul. And he says that they say of me that my letters are weighty, but my presence is weak. My letters are weighty, but my presence is weak. And what he's doing is drawing attention to the fact that this kind of seasoned speech is really hard when you're face to face in your, in the heat of the moment, especially when there's conflict. Because if you are an anxious person, like just psychologically, neurologically, if you're anxious, you can't speak from that place. You can't talk. Like if we, um, if we are in a flight or fight, 
mode, then that anxiety speaks no matter what our words are, right? People sense that. And I think what you're naming here, Bill, is, is a kind, not just what we say, but the mood, the tone of our life, which enables the words to be heard. And, and unfortunately, many of our leaders are speaking in the heat of the moment from their own troubledness. Mm-hmm. Like they're always speaking from that place, not just in sermons, but also in sermons. They're speaking f- uh, like from the immediacy of their own troubledness. And that anxiety is going to communicate. That's always going to be louder than whatever the terms are you're, that you're using. And I, I think that the key to that is knowing one, having liturgical patterns that can bear that weight, the, the weight of speaking graciously. And then the other side of it is having the kind of prayerfulness, what what the Filioque calls the, I mean, what the Philokalia calls the stillness, like the Hesychast tradition, where you, you learn to be still before God and to listen to God. And that kind of stillness dissipates the anxiety. Without that, I don't, I don't think we are going to be able to, to speak this way in the heat of the moment, maybe with some time where we can recover, but it, it's, this doesn't just happen automatically. It's not just a matter of, of finding the right words, right? Like you have to have the tone of your spirit has to be confident. You have to be again in that, that phrase we're all familiar with. You have to have a non-anxious presence to speak the kinds of words you're, you're describing. And I, that I think Paul is speaking here. I mean, this, this narrative, it's, it's a fascinating discussion around redefined speech. And I was, I was thinking about this when you f- were first giving your reflections, Bill, about this grace and peace line, you know, this, this, um, common letter opening in ancient Greece, Chiron Humon, right? Greetings to you. And Paul replaces Chiron Humon with Charis Humon, right? Grace to you. And then adds, and I can't help but think there's a shalom reference to this piece that he uses, this wholeness of God, this fullness of God. So he takes everyday speech, redefines it tweakly, you know, with a little tweak, just even a, even a rhetorical tweak. It sounds slightly, it sounds familiar, but it's slightly different. And, 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 and it moves from just greetings to grace. But then think about what, what you're saying there, Chris. That whole discussion in 2 Corinthians 10 becomes a discussion. His letters are weighty and strong. His bodily presence is weak and contemptible. And then Paul says, but what I want to do is ensure that what we say by letter when absence is what we do when present. Right? Yeah. And then he goes on in this debate then about boasting beyond measure and where do we find our confidence. And our confidence to speak like this must be in the Lord, not in our own appearance. With this background, I think, that you get in ancient Rome of, of over-speaking and boasting being really a way that you establish yourself as a person. As long as you don't get caught, you're, 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 kind, of, you're kind of good to go. So this whole narrative of the power of saying these things, you know, I mean, I'm really moved by what you're saying, Bill, because I relate to it that, you know, when do I hear people in authority talk like this? But then that actually being rooted in something that's actual in person, 
that these people in authority have a liturgy that allows them to bless you, that that actually is what's in their agenda. It's not just, this is a really good way to get people on side with me, but this is actually coming from where my confidence is. I I think this is gorgeous theologically. Mm -hmm. I love what Chris said about it. You know, I mean, it's, it's like one of the ways we, and I can, I can say this from experience, like, and, and Chris can attest to this from having, talked with me both in written text and in word and face-to-face, you just, when you put in the work to go through the stuff that Chris just mentioned about like admitting that you are anxious, admitting that you have a, I don't know, a combative, you know, tenor and tone to you for whether it's personality driven or seasonally circumstantially driven. It's like to put in the work to, level out the best you can. I mean, not you, you, you know, not, not any of us can all the time, but just to have resources or the, the awareness to put in that work, you're a lot of that is private and personal and it's not public, but you're really loving your neighbor when you're putting in that kind of self-care, whether with a therapist, a spiritual director, developing, like you said, Chris, some, some prayer habits, some liturgies that find ways for you to, let out some of that anxiety without suppressing it or rebuking it, but like putting it someplace, you know, it's, it's really you're, we're, that that's moving into, I think being a Royal priesthood is when we put in that kind of personal private work and listen when people around us who love us say, Hey, I, you know, I appreciate what you're saying, but you're coming at me kind of hard here. Like to just take that and, and reflect on it for a while and, Think about why and how, like what was happening that week that made me do that, like to find those themes, to find those patterns and to work on like ironing them out is truly going to benefit our immediate relationships and, you know, the church's relationship in the, with the world. When we can put in that kind of work, that kind of healthy self-care, I think it's encouraging to know that like we, we can do that work and, and to varying degrees, iron some of that heightenedness out. You know, I'm an eight on the Enneagram and it's like, I don't always want to be the person when I walk into a room, like you can tell the kind of day I'm having before I open my mouth. And there's just ways to not lose yourself and become someone you're not, but there are ways to learn to just be more aware, be more calm, be a little slower to say things and be more careful that you really can make some headway with it. Yeah, that's right. Shall I proceed? That's such a cool conversation. I don't know why it struck me Brewer and Chris, like it really, it was really motivating to hear you guys pull that out of the end of the letter and start talking about it. Like it, it felt prophetically right for the season we're all in and the way that there's discourse everywhere, both written face to face. I mean, categorically new categories of communicating every day. It just felt really, I felt very settled listening to you guys talk about that. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating conversation to break into those first few verses and, and think about all the, all of the layers that can be uncovered as to how he's addressing people and like, 
Chris, like you just brought up the work that goes into that. I, it's not just something we, we can move on, obviously, but I think that's really something to talk a lot about is the, the craft of having a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Jesus says for, for not without reason you by your words, you will be condemned or, or by your words, you will be approved. Mm-hmm. Like you're, the way that we live, yeah, this is, this is James as well. Like the, the, the kind of life we're living and the way we're speaking. I mean, that those, those are aspects of the same reality, like the, how I communicate, how I live. There, there's, uh, those are inseparably bound up together. I, I do want to talk a bit about God, our father and the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, these are deep waters, and I don't quite know how to name it exactly. So be patient with me for a moment and feedback to me so that I can I can respond and kind of move toward clarity. I think David made a comment earlier that you know Paul's theology can kind of weary us and we can lose sight of or or it can intoxicate us and we can lose sight of the pastoral and ethical concerns that are actually moving the letter. The, the, the letter is written for those reasons, right? But I, I want, I want to try to name something here. I, th- I think that the, the character of Paul's theology, the intricacy of it is inseparable from the, the touch and the precision that he has pastorally. Hmm. That, oh, yeah. As he's working theologically, with because he has, as a Jew, he has this commitment to the singularity, the oneness, and the otherness of the Lord, of Israel's Lord, right? The one who has revealed himself to, to Abraham and to Moses. And, and he has this devotion to Jesus. Right? So when, when he says something, you know, like right, right at the beginning of the letter, Thanks be to God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, or and our Lord Jesus Christ, or and Christ Jesus. Like he's naming Jesus, this this man that was once known after the flesh, a man who has a particular history. Right, he's born at a particular time, he dies at a, a particular moment. Like that man, Jesus of Nazareth, I mentioned in the last talk. There are other Jesuses running around. We have to designate Jesus justice precisely to separate him from this Jesus of Nazareth, right? Who has, you know, he was another body in the room for many of us. And even though though perhaps the people Paul is writing to here have not been in the room with Jesus, they've been in the room with people who have been in the room with Jesus, Mm. right? And, And yet somehow Paul has to hold together that the monotheistic devotion that he has as, as a son of Abraham with what has been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And what I, what I want to try to touch, the, the, the nerve I want to touch, is that I think his care theological, his theological care, his, the precision and the lightness of touch in the way that he's honoring God and Jesus, both as God and one other than God, is inseparable from the kind of touch and precision he has in talking with his neighbors. 
and understanding himself. And that the fact that we, we tend to see those as rivals, right? Mm -hmm. That if you're, if you're theologically concerned, then you're not really concerned about the complexities of human experience. Or if you're dogmatic, I mean, think about that in English to be dogmatic is to be harsh, to be concerned about doctrine, to be doctrinaire is to be pharisaical, is to be indifferent or cruel. I think the truth is exactly the opposite, right? That if you truly pay attention, and I, I mean, we're saying this as Christians, we're saying this as, as pastors and preachers, but I don't think there's any doubt that if you're a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu and you're at the heart of your tradition, you would say something like the same thing, right? like to be to learn to love as you are called to love by your faith requires paying, loving attention to the faith that's been delivered to you. So Paul's devotion to Jesus. And I think this, you know, Kendall Sulin has, has written about this, I think really helpfully to remember that Jesus name means the Lord saves. I'm careful not to say the divine name. And this is one of the, the ways in which I'm trying to, to honor that tradition. Uh, Jensen talks a lot about this in his Ezekiel commentary, that Christians are too quick to throw around the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, to speak it when we, sh we should honor the tradition of Ezekiel and, and Israel's prophets to, to, be, to honor that name. But leaving that aside for the moment, I think it's important to remember that Jesus is the one who brings us to the Father and the Father to us. Right. And, and that this is not some kind of tritheism. He's not there, no, kind of council of gods. And it is, it is a kind of monotheism that has been complicated, rendered intricate by the experience of Jesus. And Paul's loving attention to that, to Jesus and to the ways in which he's been called to speak about Jesus and the God that Jesus sees and speaks to and speaks for and embodies. That is, I think, precisely what shapes the pastoral sensitivities he has. So talk back to me. Let me make sure I'm, I'm communicating clearly because I, I, I think I'm a little, uh, the, the edges are fuzzy there, but you, hopefully you're sensing at least what. Can I ask oh, you yeah. sort of a silly question, Chris, with that? Yeah. So a person at, at our church over the last, you know, four or five years, there's been a lot of theological shifts. Well, actually the last eight or nine years, there's been a lot of really, really significant theological shifts. And it, it you know, people were, have gotten fatigued by like a lot of the deep conversations. And uh, a person who left our church last year said something on social media that really made me laugh. It's, it's funny and it's like a good like straw man sort of thing to put up here, but I'm just curious what your what your thoughts are. The person was talking about their new church, and they said it's so nice to finally go to church and hear the gospel without the without the theology. <laughs> Which you know, I, I have a lot of funny comparisons as to what that could mean. Uh, which most of them are appropriate, so I'll keep it off of this wonderfully moral podcast that we're doing. But like, what outside of the funny and and almost like I, I'm empathetic with the person to some extent. But like, what 
what is that person saying and how does that relate to what you just said about this healthy balance between being in the theological conversation and having that be part of what opens us to this like romantic love of the father, the son and the Holy spirit that causes us to think, talk and live differently, like on those pastoral levels or priestly Mm -hmm. levels. Mm -hmm. What is she saying that she doesn't know she's saying when, when that comment comes, I'm so happy to be in a church that preaches the gospel without all the theology. What, what's being said there? Well, I'm, I wonder, I, I don't, I think we very rarely, if ever, know what we're saying when we're saying it. It's <laughs> difficult to know uh, what we mean. So let me give a couple of readings. I think one reading, she might simply be saying something along the lines of, it's good to come to church and feel that I'm not having to try to think through what I'm hearing. Okay. Right? I can just kind of be present to it. Mm. It, and it might be it might be as simple as what she means by theology is newness, mm. new new language, new ideas, new feelings that then I'm having to work around to be present in in church. Wow, that I'm having to work around to be present. Yeah, it might be as simple as that. I, and I, I think that in, in part is we have, and I, I mean, I'm not speaking specifically about Salem. I think a lot of our churches, we've just, we've kind of made it, we've taken on the responsibility of making attendance at church uh, enjoyable for people. <laughs> like like we, we've tried to, uh, in, but enjoyable in a kind of, um, hmm, in the I'm sense so of what interested in what you're saying right now. I'm so interested in what you're saying right now. This is like, I got my journal out that doesn't have clever things about intimacy and abandonment, but but listen, Chris, I, I'm just like, indulgently, I'm really interested in this conversation here. Yeah. David, were you about to weigh in on that before, before I go on? Yeah, I mean, not to probably say anything useful. I mean, I th- I think that I think that at some level, one of the processes that I'm detecting as I you know so like my life. So this is entirely autobiographical as a response, but you know, I I became cognizant, I think, of my church life in a in a village in the middle of the jungle of West Africa. Right. And then, and then I became, you know, uh, I, I moved to the UK and, you know, was in sort of the Northwest of, of the, of England for a lot of my time. And then I've moved to North America. And, and I would say that what I see around the supper table is also what I see in, in the church service that to sit and eat with people in a village in Africa took a lot of work, right? uh, you know, like, like sometimes meals were delayed because, you know, whoever was out hunting had not caught anything yet. So is, you know, everything's going to run late because with this work here and somebody's beating rice to shell it so that we can eat the rice from inside of it. And then, and then now I live in, in Calgary, Alberta, where I, I literally within like three minutes from where I'm sitting right now, I have people who will just give me food <laughs> and for, for minor exchanges of money. They're here's all ready to go and all I need to do is eat it. And to be honest with you, it's, it's, easy, it's easy to, to digest even, right? 
and I actually see the same pattern in our spirituality, right? That that we are we are used to to actually I want to turn up and not have difficulty because I don't want difficulty in any area of my life, right? Um, and then what I'm hearing, and so not, let me not just criticize congregations here. What I'm hearing then also is that what preachers are not doing that I would want to defend Paul and say Paul always does if we give him the time is drawing the connections between what I'm saying theologically and what that means for you. Right? Uh, and the moment a congregant can't see the preacher making that connection, this now is a lot of raw ingredients that I don't know what to do with. Right? I, I need the little good food box that says, here's the ingredients and here's how you cook them. So, you know, for me, good theology will always lead you to the, the cross and the table, right? It will always lead you to something that I, I mean, I, it's not lost. Like I'm sat, you know, pretentiously with the Greek text open here, you know, grace and peace to you from our God and Father, right? And then the next word, Eucharistumen, right? So we're now, you know, the Eucharist now is, is, is I mean, it, it, it's, it's, of course, also the basic Greek word for thanks, but, but I can't n ignore the resonance of, you know, we've gone from blessing that you haven't earned, blessing that I haven't spoke to, and now we're in a space of Eucharist, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that to me, there's a double-sidedness. Us as simple followers of Jesus in the West, like everything simple, pre-packaged and pre-chewed and, and pre-digested even, um, and us as preachers are often doing a bad job of modeling Paul, which is the only reason I want to talk about these things is because they have rooted down deep into my heart and changed how I am. And I do think it's the preacher's job to help people see that, to help right. people connect yeah. with that and we're and i would say for us as an industry <laughs> forgive that term but i think we're regularly failing at that yeah and, and I, honestly and i want i don't want to lose bill the point about what's happening in that woman's observation but i, th I think i think david kind of counterintuitively the reason we're failing at that is that we feel the pressure to do it but we, we don't have the kind of deep formation, the, the kind of attentiveness that allows us to see the intricacies that I'm naming, the, the, the interwovenness, the delicacy of all of this. And so we end up making, drawing kind of obvious conclusions. Mm -hmm. Like um, the, the worst thing I've ever read by far, the worst thing I've ever read about preaching like it, it's in a class all of its own. I mean, it's, it's number one with a bullet <laughs> is that what matters in your preaching is the ask it says. And I hope no one will look this up. I hope it's not still online, but it was, it was published in a denominational magazine at the, the point of a sermon is what you are going to ask the congregation to do. Hmm. And I want to say in this, you know, not anxiously, <laughs> I want to say that that's not only bad advice, that you could not possibly give worse advice than that. <laughs> the last thing in the world people need to hear is me asking them to do something. Hmm. Literally, the la like I could say anything, the worst thing I can do. But we've, we've gotten the impression that that's what's practical, that 
whatever I'm going to say about God needs to end with me telling them, you should do this. But I think the right way to hear what you're saying is to see how what God has done, is doing, will do, and who God is. Here's how it bears on the world in its reality. Oh, yeah. Right? So I think precisely because we've done the former, we can't see the latter. Hmm. Right. Because we're we're cutting it down to the size of the outcomes we want. Mm -hmm. Like what Paul is doing is not being practical. He's telling them what God's work in the world has done and is doing and therefore makes mm -hmm. possible for them to do. So he's very much concerned about the the flesh that they're going to live, the, the, the way in which they flesh out the gospel, I should say. But he is not concerned with here's how it's going to better your lives. <laughs> like, like here's how, here's the, here's the product takeaway, which I know, I, I know you, what you're saying, but I, I think it's tragically, it's trying to do the one thing could be practical in a, in a bad way, let's say that makes it so that we can't be practical in the other way. Now I, I would say my read at least is that we, there are very few. I mean, I think I can name on one hand, the sermons I've heard in person or virtually that were, I think kind of ivory tower sermons. What we mean by that, right. Is like, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of theology that's turned in on itself, you know, where you have a preacher who's just in love with the ideas mm -hmm. and like a mathematician who's gone mad working on a formula, working on an equation, like a theologian who's just, just intoxicated with theological ideas. I can count on one hand. I've heard some of those sermons, but I haven't heard many. I can, there's a number no man can number <laughs> of sermons that are trying to be practical, that are nothing more than bad advice about how to live a middle-class life. Mm -hmm. I, so I think we, we have to look, let's look at what Paul is doing here. It has everything to do with the way you're going to treat your neighbor, ethical and pastoral. Mm-hmm. But it is, it's disruptive and counterintuitive and non-commonsensical at every turn, right? That there's nothing about it that is kind of blandly, quote-unquote, practical. So I, I want us to spend some time with that. But let me, let me say this about Bill. The, uh, another way of hearing what she's saying is I, I think in, in our circles, we've been taught that our salvation ultimately is up to us. Right. And it's ultimately up to me having the right ideas and me having the right feelings about those ideas. And then me living like having the right actions or lack of actions that are fitted to those ideas and those feelings. So I've got to think the right thoughts. I've got to feel the right feelings. I've got to do the right things and avoid the bad things. And if I do all of that, then I'm going to be saved. So when you start introducing new language and changing my beliefs, then you're calling my relationship with God into question, which is insulting already. And if I'm arrogant, I'm just going to think, who are you to challenge the way I've known God? But if I'm anxious, now I'm terrified because you, I, I thought I was going to be saved because I had believed these thoughts people had given me. I had felt these feelings. I had done these, I had acted accordingly. And now you're telling me that I was wrong to think that. I should have been feeling something else. I should have been doing something else. Or that, that a fact that I did that didn't matter. 
So I think you're going to generate in, in a culture where people have been convinced that that's what faith is. Faith is thinking the right thoughts, feeling the right feelings, doing the right things, not doing the bad things. Then as soon as you change any of anything in that, in that formula, of course, they're going to respond badly. How could they not respond badly? Right? Like if, again, if, if they're, if they're bad people, they're going to come back arrogantly, dismissively. But if they're, if they're broken, which is overwhelmingly what we're dealing with, people that are, are really in, in pain, now they're, they're terrified. So to, be, so to say, I can fi- I've found a church where what they're saying to me, what they're asking of me, feels like what I have known for a long time. That's incredibly reassuring, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, it, it, I mean, it's to me that's a referendum on the toxicity of what we've called the gospel mm-hmm. that this person is simply reflecting. Right? I didn't mean to go on too long there, but I, I think I wanted to speak to both of those. Mm-hmm. Does that help, Bill, or is that not quite where? Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can relate to it on a personal level on a personal level relating to that person and then just kind of like bird's eye view. Like that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess in my worst moments, I, you know, handle those situations, uh, the anxious presence way. (laughs) Um, I, it would now, I think as I'm living this out, the consternation in me is not how do we like, how do we stop people from saying that stuff? It's so many times people like that go and they go and find a place that will reassure what they've, what they learned first and then built a fortress around. Mm -hmm. Right. And we don't have to talk about this now, but I guess like for a, another time, if it doesn't fit this conversation, what are the pastoral moves that can help us, you know, cut into that person's strongholds and help them along, help them find green pastures and still waters? You know, is it just letting them go and and hoping they return or whatever? I mean, like, I guess my consternation now is like, I don't know how, I don't know the approach to help a person like that not feel anxious about, change about newness and and you see it play out in other areas of their life that they don't realize that have nothing to do with quote unquote theology but as their kids change they don't know how to adapt to those changes when they when their bodies change and they get older and they're starting to deal with new health issues and new awarenesses they don't hand nothing people like that are not handling any of those changes well so it's like obviously their relation to the theology is very easily related to all the kinds of changes that take place in life and the way that it makes them defensive. So it would be like, what is, what is our priestly move to help a person like that not feel so afraid, defensive, anxious, and, and maybe start to have a broader self-awareness. Well, but I, I think that's to, that's to David's point. Like, and I, again, I'm going to have a, this is a really hard point to make for me. And I, and I won't, I won't get it exactly right, but I think there is in at least in Protestant circles, at least in Protestant circles in middle America, 
there's a tendency to try to micromanage our lives and to micromanage the lives of the people we're pastoring in, in the name of helping them. And, and I think you see this, for instance, in parenting. I mean, people my age and younger, I think the temptation is to try to parent our kids into a perfectly tailored experience of life. And, and then pastorally, we, we're, we're thinking about, you know, how do I handle this situation so that you know, these, these difficulties don't happen? And I, I think all of that is a dead end. Like, it's, it's beyond our capacities. We're going to dilute our we, – we just can't manage our lives at that level. We shouldn't manage our lives at that level. And it's a kind of thinking, a management kind of thinking, that actually causes us to live with anxiety, that generates anxiety. And it, you know, that what you were naming before, Bill, as, as control, right, is Ian McGilchrist, who I've been reading um, quite a bit over the last couple of years, he talks a lot about the, the ways in which the, there is a kind of knowing, left hemisphere knowing, he talks about it this, this way. And, and, and there's a lot to get into here. Anybody who's interested in it, you know, reach out to me and I'll, I'll kind of help you get started into it if you haven't read his books or heard his lectures or anything, but that there's a kind of knowing that's all about apprehending, like getting a handle on the world. And that the reason the human brain and not just the human brain is split into kind of two hemispheres is that there's a kind of knowing that requires being able to, to grasp something, but that is a mechanical managerial kind of knowing that's about control and about seizure. And there's a, a right hemisphere kind of knowing that is holistic. It sees larger pattern. It's imaginative and it's a far superior way of knowing. Now we need the other, we need to be able to get our hand on something, but we also have to be able to see again, the broader picture, how this fits into that. Mm. And, and his argument is, and it, you know, tracks pretty closely, I think, with like Marshall McLuhan's reading of, the literate society and what happens to us because of technology. And it dovetails with a lot of the, the criticisms from people like Jacques Ellul and others. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but what, what I love about McGilchrist's point, McGilchrist's point is that there's a kind of, there's a way of knowing that's unimaginative, mechanical, it's controlling. And when you get addicted to that way of knowing, you become dogmatic in the bad sense. Everything is about putting, is about a kind of cold certainty, labeling and putting away, storing, securing. And that kind of mechanistic controlling way of knowing is what I think almost all of us have been taught to practice as pastoral, but it's inherently unpastoral. Like it's not, there's no way to do that lovingly. If that's the way you're thinking, it is intrinsically controlling, manipulative, myopic, managerial. It's mastery. It's mastery in the worst possible sense. Everything is a tool. Everything is an object. It gets labeled and put away or it gets used. Mm -hmm. And if we think about our lives or the lives of other people, like how do we manage it and control it in those ways? No matter how good your motives are, the result will be slavish oppression. Like you will abuse people no matter what your intentions are. The only way 
to approach it? Is that what Miyokris calls the, the kind of right hemisphere way, this imaginative way, the acceptance, the acceptance of paradox, the acceptance of mystery, the recognition that I have no idea how God's going to work that out in your life, and you don't need me to know. What you need to know from me as your pastor is that I'm confident in God, and I'm confident in you, and I'm confident in our community. We will find a way. Like there's resiliency here you don't know about. So in this particular case, I don't know why you're anxious. Not not you, but you know, whomever we're, we're speaking to. And I have no idea how it's going to resolve or if it's going to resolve. But I do know that God is going to be faithful. And let's, let's lean into this in terms of this experience and see how does God's faithfulness work. Like uh, affording people, affording people some some agency, mm-hmm. like reminding them that you know they are not passive objects of God's will or of the nature of things. Mm-hmm. They they have a say. They have a say in what happens, or at least in what they make of what happens. And I, I think that there's there has to be much more open handedness. And and this is what I see see with with paul and and what we might call the the practicality of paul which is imaginative and inspirited it's an inspired practicality here's how what god is doing matters in the world and you should attend to that but it's not managerial right it's it's not controlling and this is yeah well i mean are are you hearing what are you hearing me say in that I, I what I just wrote down a little bit while you were talking is about like the 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 awful catch twenty two of like the system that creates that kind of thinking is a system that makes the person already feel okay not having agency. Yes. Yes. Right. And so I think, and I have experienced, uh, especially since the pandemic, talk about people having like, so an evangelical fundamentalist Christian is on one level, so deeply obsessed with personal choice and freedom, but actually it's pretty hollow because they almost don't want any in other ways. They don't want to be told, you know, like I've noticed that the agency talk is frightening to people from those systems that they can make their own meaning. They can determine how they feel about this. And they're so, they're afraid to do that because they're afraid of going probably to hell, but out of bounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the catch 22, it's, it's probably like the old adage of like the, the person who's drowning desperately needs the lifeguard. And then they fight the lifeguard when the lifeguard comes there to, to help them. Yeah. And sometimes the lifeguard has to push the person away to swim back to them. Right. So that they don't drown also. And I think it's, I love what you're saying. The frustrating part of it is it's so systematized that they, they have such certainties, but part of their certainty is rooted in being told by an authority exactly what they're supposed to believe. And when it bears witness, there's no more questions, no more conversation. Mm -hmm. So the idea that they can contribute to what the church is chewing on and like Dave said, and, and digesting and working on this meal that we're constantly trying to, to, prepare well, the fact that they can contribute to it, they don't even have a paradigm for that. 
It's just tell me what to believe and I'll believe it. And if you're not telling me the things that make me feel comfortable, I'll find somebody who is. But they're actually not. They're interested in defending, but they're not interested in bringing ingredients to the table, if that makes any sense. So I think agency scares some of them. Yeah. And yeah, I think I think the key here is the the kind of attention we're giving the world. Like yeah. how are we present? How are you or how are you and I apprehending or perceiving what's happening? The quality of our attention. That that's what's at stake. And if you have that kind of managerial, controlling, mechanistic attention, it is impossible to be faithful in that way. You cannot be loving if that's how you're attending to the world. Again, no matter how desperately you want to be, you you have to have the the imaginative shift has to happen. There has to be that kind of eye-opening Damascus Road shift to a different kind of awareness. This is really helpful, Chris. I'm sorry, I cut you off. I apologize. No, no, I'm just saying we can't make that happen. Like that, that is something... And of course we can't make it happen because the thought that we could would be left hemisphere controlling managerial, you know, that, that, that idea that I can find a button to push to get the outcome I want. No, you can't. No, I can't. The, the, by far and away, the most important things in my life have nothing to do with my intentionality, nothing to do with my will, nothing to do with my desires. They're, they're there as gift, as grace and delighting in that delighting in that it becomes like that's the shift that has to happen sorry can i can i interject this maybe where you were going to go here bill so apologies there's there's a i mean i actually another thought that is interesting and i don't want to to take over christopher because you're guiding us through this but it struck me that verses nine through to sort of 13, 14 of chapter one, we see Paul doing exactly what you are talking about here, Chris. Mm-hmm. Right? He's like, listen, I haven't stopped praying for you, but asking God to do something in your life. I want fruit, right? So, you know, fruit's not something Paul can produce. It's something that will happen because of what God is doing in a person's life. It's not even something they can produce. It's all you know, cause, causal and, and, and consequential. So I, I, as you were talking, Chris, and, and sort of responding to Bill, I couldn't help but see, oh, this is a really is what Paul's doing here, you know, a few in a few verses that we're about to get to. If I can ask a pastoral question, and perhaps we don't want to ask, answer this right now, because, um, you know, I think someone listening to this, perhaps in a, you know, priestly role, a pastoral position, or even somebody that's just curious themselves is thinking, I think we're all agreed on what you're saying. I mean, and, and I, I appreciate it really, even listening to it as a Pauline scholar in, in Pauline scholarship, this indicative imperative question is, is really huge. Is, is this stuff you do or is this stuff that happens? I think what you're describing is exactly what all of us in this conversation are saying. Yes, that's what we, we want to be priests like that. Right. Um, but I hear in Bill's question, there's a shepherding problem. That the moment that I decide, <laughs> if that's the right term, to be a priest like that, my community of, of whom I shepherd are so conditioned, and I realize I'm just repeating here, but are so conditioned to, to mm-hmm. find a different style of priest 
that they actually go and look for that type of priest. And as a result, my desire to be a good priest has actually made me a bad priest <laughs> or a bad pastor because now the people that I'm looking after have all run away. Right? Mm -hmm. So is it okay to ask you the question, how do you make that transition at a pace you know, that, that doesn't actually inadvertently hurt the very people that you're trying to shepherd well. Uh, is, does that, I mean, is my question making sense? Oh, absolutely. It does. And I, I don't, I mean, all I can do here is, is point to the scriptures and to, you know, the tradition as I understand it and to people that I've seen live that. I actually don't think there is any way to do it without putting people at risk. But I, I think the same is true anyway, right? Like one of, one of the points I want to underline is that kind of left hemisphere knowing is, is always diluted. The world is never what we've labeled it to be. And even if our system makes sense, even if, you know, all of our labels work and all, all of the, the machine is running, we might say, that's an illusion. That's not what life is actually like. So the, the fact is, being a good or bad pastor is not related to what happens specific. You know, let, let me let me give an example of this. Um, two, two things. One is from Ezekiel, and one is from my own my own life, a parenting story, which I sh I've shared a lot. But it was so so crucial for me because I think it was a shift from what I'm calling here, following McGilchrist, the left hemisphere to the right hemisphere knowing from kind of managerial to poetic knowing or from control to open-handed faith. I, Julie and I were having an issue trying to decide what to do with one of our kids. Like it was a, a real issue, behavioral issue at school. And it was creating a lot of anxiety for us and, and for the kids. And we, we didn't quite know what to do. And we, we'd been talking about it for a long time. We did, Julie and I didn't quite agree about what to do. And I fell asleep. And the next morning I woke up and this often happens to me. I'll wake up and there will be a thought that my unconscious is just kind of shepherded to me. Right. And I woke up to this thought, our job is to help raise a good man, not to make a nice kid. Our job is to help raise a good man, not make a nice kid. That to me is the difference in awareness I'm trying to get at, right? That if we pastor in order to make nice kids, good Christians, quote unquote, like people who, you know, who, who kind of have all their ducks in a row, one, we may succeed, but it'll still be a failure because that's not what life actually is. That's not where God is actually operative. Our job as pastors and priests is to, to use Eugene Peterson's words, it's not to do anything that would get in the way of what God is doing. Like, it's mostly not interfering in that process of growth, that natural process of unfolding. So I, I say that to say, I don't know and I, I'm looking here at, you know, pastors and bishops in my own life, as well as stories like Paul's in scripture. I don't think there's a way you can love people well without many of them walking away. I mean, think about the prodigal son story. When the father loves his sons well, yes, one of the son goes away. Ironically, the son who stays is in worse condition than the son who goes away. 
Mm-hmm. And some of being a good shepherd, right, is not protecting the sheep from nature. It's protecting the sheep from the wolves as best you can. Right. And it's not trying to get the, the, the sheep to be wise before it is. You know, it recognizing that, yeah, it, it doesn't, if, if some of my sheep go away, it doesn't mean I'm a bad shepherd. Jesus' sheep go away. It doesn't make him a bad shepherd. Right. That's right. so good. This is so helpful. Mm-hmm. Like, what makes me a good shepherd is not that I can keep all the sheep together. What makes me a good shepherd is that I don't treat the sheep like wolves. I don't act like a wolf. Like, and I don't, I don't just send, you know, that, that's what I was going to read from Ezekiel. Let me see if I can find the, the passage where Ezekiel is talking about what makes a bad shepherd. And it's, it's stunning, like the way in which he, he describes the, the, the ways in which Israel's leaders have failed. Listen to this. Ezekiel 34, I'm going to read from the King James. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that feed themselves. Should not shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and you clothe yourself with wool. You kill them that are fed, but do not feed the flock. The diseased you have not strengthened. Neither have you healed the one that was sick. Neither have you bound up that which was broken. Neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty, you have ruled them. Like that's what a bad shepherd is. Mm. You're taking care of yourself and not the sheep. You're, You're living off of the sheep, fleecing them, feeding yourself. And you're not protecting them. You're not seeking them out. Right. I, 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 to me, the last line is the crucial one. You are ruling with cruelty, but you're, you've got your hands on them. Like you're, you're, you're trying to grasp. And this really is a kind of openness. I mean, I think about Jesus when he's coming down to the end and he sees what's about to happen with Peter. You're going to deny me. What he says is, you know, Satan has desired all of you to sift you all this week. But I have prayed for you. <laughs> Think about that. Like he's he's holding Peter with such open hands. He's he's not saying, I'm not going to let Satan do that to you. <laughs> I'm not praying that you won't fail. Notice, he doesn't say, I don't want you to fail me, Peter. Or I'm going to protect you so you do not fail me. <laughs> I'm going to pray that your faith does not fail when you do. That's what I'm going to pray that you're. And so back to the pastoral analogy, what we try to do is to treat sheep like sheep so that even when they go astray, they don't lose their sheep nature. And as long as they don't lose their sheep nature, they'll be fine. There there will be a shepherd. As long as they don't lose their humanity, as long as they don't lose their openness to God and neighbor, as long as they don't lose their heart They'll, they'll be fine. So I don't want to treat my kids or my friends or my neighbors or my congregation in any way that is cruel enough to change their nature, to make them wolfish or goatish rather than sheepish in the right way. But I, I don't know if that helps, but I think that's, a, that's the only kind of help I can see to offer, 
right, is that we we really do have to trust God and trust neighbor here. There there are no techniques. There, there are no guarantees. All we can do is trust the, the long process mm-hmm. of raising a good man. Like, give it time. Give it 40 years. And give it 50 years. And, and I think this is, this is why Paul, you know, there's a lot at stake. Paul's in, is quite intentional. But again and again, what you hear from him is prayer. His, his, like you pointed this out, David, right? My, I am praying for you that there will be fruit. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I don't know how to overemphasize that. Like, there's nothing is more practical than intercessory prayer and keeping our hands off of the lives of the people that we're interceding for. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I mean, really helpful, Chris, because I think as I'm hearing my question responded to what I'm realizing, if we can turn this into a brief confessional um, (laughs) between us and the listeners is that even in my question, is that desire to control, right? So it's like, and I'm and I'm claiming that okay, this is a, this is good, like it's good control. I'm saying to myself, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm saying okay, no, but I want to protect these people. So let me, can I, at some level, what I was asking you was, how can I control a little bit <laughs> so that I can eventually get to a place <laughs> that, that 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 there's no need to do that, and 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 maybe there's maybe it's my own agnosticism towards prayer right you know maybe that's rooted in my heart somewhere that that actually as you know after years of doing leadership training as a pastor i'm not convinced that um you know not stopping praying is actually the answer right and and, you know now i'm going to confess that that's what i believe is right but maybe deep down in me my question you know, exposes that I'm not totally convinced by that, but now it really is a confessional. <laughs> you know, when, when let's let's go to those verses for just a moment, like that that you pulled up, um, David. Verses nine through sort of thirteen, fourteen. Yeah, and notice, yeah, exactly, and notice what it is Paul is praying for, and what he what he isn't praying for, right? Mm. By implication, um, I, I think I have King James yeah, here. King James again. Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you to fill you with the knowledge of His will, to fill you with the knowledge of His will. And I, one of the things that strikes me about that, right, is Paul is not simply telling them what God's will is; he's praying <laughs> that God will teach them well, what God's enough. will is. Right now, of course, there is a way in which Paul is doing that. But the image that keeps coming to me, I, I was writing yesterday about Ezekiel. And this is this is a tender moment for me because I, I've really struggled with writing about Ezekiel. It's a hard, hard, hard book. And trying to to sense what is happening here. Why is why is Ezekiel speaking in these ways? Why is God speaking in, in these ways? Yeah. And last night I had this moment where I just suddenly heard this since he's force feeding them. There's, there's a forcefulness to what Ezekiel's doing. There is a kind of force feeding, but there are two ways that can be heard. There's the kind of force feeding of torture right, where, you, where you are damaging someone by forcing them. 
But then there's also the, this is the only way to save you from what your body is doing to you. Right. And, and the image that came was what a mother bird does for its chicks. And, and I wrote this line down. Uh, Ezekiel is like a mother bird that is taking hard word of God that they cannot digest. He's taking it in, chewing it up, partially digesting it, then regurgitating it and dropping it into their mouths. Hmm. Right? He's softening it in a way that makes it. But, but in, to do that, he has to trust God's work in his life. And then the process of digestion and nurture in their lives that he actually can't control. Mm. And I think that what Paul is doing is he's taking what he's, what has been revealed to him, right? The encounter with Jesus, the, the teaching of Jesus, the gospel that's been entrusted to him. That's, that's a word that he's partially digested and he's dropping it into their mouths. But ultimately that's a, that the, the digestive nurturing process is not his to manage. Mm. And that's where we have to trust to prayer. We have to trust to, well, we're trusting to the spirit and turning to prayer precisely because we trust the spirit. And what he wants is for them to have God's knowledge, knowledge of God's will from God. And then he says, so that your life might, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So if you're thinking in that left, left hemisphere way, which most of us do most of the time, a worthy life and a life that pleases God is about controllable outcomes. Mm. You know, in, in, in a silly sense, like it's, it's not watching R-rated movies and not drinking alcohol and not saying cuss words and paying your tithes and showing up every Sunday. Like it's silly little measurables. Mm. And we know that that pleases God, right? But that... Paul here is not, you know, hoping for them to be nice people. Like the goal here is not that. Mm. But to have a life that has the same kind of worthwhileness that Jesus' life had. Right? That, that these people can live lives that are worthy in the sense that they're worthwhile. But it mattered, right, that David, you know, that... If, if I'm in a moment, you know, I was having a rough day the other day and you, David, you reached out to me with, Hey, listen, I'm here. If you need to talk, like that's a worthy comment. You're letting me know, Hey man, when, when you have it, when you need it, I'm here, I'm listening. Like that, that was a worthwhile thing for you to say. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't a throwaway, you know, be warmed and filled. You were communicating to me care. That's worthwhile. And then this, pleasing God, like bringing delight to God because of how much like Jesus you look and sound in that worthwhileness. And then notice this, growing in the knowledge of God, hmm. being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance. <laughs> and, and that's, again, what this is what I mean by Paul's attention to the intricacy of the theology that has come in his encounter with Jesus Christ. He recognizes that the power of God is displayed in the cross, mm -hmm. that where God's power is at work in you, you can endure anything <laughs> like, like, like that, that. The irony is to be more than a conqueror is that you can be conquered without being dispirited. 
you can, you can be a conqueror in all of these things. Like whatever you're enduring, you can endure it because you have the resiliency of God. And of course, I know, like, obviously when Paul talks about wanting them to know God, the knowledge of God, he, he is talking about them grasping the theology. But more than that, having this kind of mystical sense of God's nearness and God's character but I think it's also the kind of knowledge God has come to have God's kind of awareness of things hmm. and let that, let that come alive in you. Those are the things he's praying for. So notice he's not praying for their crops to grow and their children to be nice. He's not praying for them to have bigger barns or for their you know, cattle to reproduce plentifully. Right. He's not praying that you know they get money back on their taxes or that they win the lottery. What he's praying for is this deep, intimate, mystical awareness of what God has done in Jesus that will charge your life with, with the beauty of the gospel. That's what's practical, right, in that Pauline sense, right? Like, I want you to know what I know. I want you to see what I can see because I've encountered Jesus. And that like trusting that preaching about what it means for Jesus to be God and to be with God. Mm. There's no greater gift we can give people than that. There's nothing. The only greater gift we could give them is the other form of it, which is this is the body broken for you. This is the bloodshed for you. Mm. Like, what we, and I mean, this is what the priestly ministry is. We're giving them Jesus as we can and trusting the Spirit's process in their life beyond what we can. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm I'm in. I agree, and 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 I also I'm struck by, as I'm listening to you say that, you know, I feel. I realize I'm just staying in this confessional, so I think everybody now that listens is bound to my confessions. <laughs> but, but I think there's there's two things, and just to being very vulnerable with this, I, I think what I'm loving about what you're saying is I I feel a sense of the Spirit's resonance in that. I'm like, yes, that's what I want. I'm also aware of, until very recently, I don't have many models of that in my life. Right? And, you know, I think of some of our mutual friends. I think of, of, of you know, you all in this conversation are modeling that in, in, in different ways. And I'm aware that if I'm in any way indicative of other people in that are listening there's probably a lot of people saying the same yes i hear you i love that it's beautiful and i need to find somebody modeling that for me because i need to i need to learn how the spirit does that in my own life um, that might not be the response that's not why you bring a pauline scholar on but that's my honest response no, no, to that's that. exactly why i bring you on though david i mean i think that's <laughs> that's exactly right bill man i'm trying to take this all in the the realization I'm having as I'm listening to you talk is I think there's there's a there's a category 
that I just never thought of until I was listening to this and thinking about what Paul says in Colossians and also more notably in, I think, 1 Corinthians. But it just its probably should have dawned on me a long time ago, so I pray that our church here forgives me. But there's at the heart of this issue, going back to the idea of uh, that person, there's we've been taught to have codependent relationships mm-hmm. in the worst way. Mm-hmm. We've been, we've been taught to not be priests. We've been taught to be caretakers mm-hmm. and to make people dependent on us in ways that are unhealthy. And then we become dependent on them in ways that are unhealthy. And I think if I'm being honest with myself, deep down inside, I know that this person is looking for something that shouldn't be given but my frustration, at least initially, is I, I don't care if she wants something she shouldn't have. I just want her to want it from me and be satisfied that she got it here, right? And the, the, the father, the prodigal son's father, lets both brothers leave because he doesn't want them to be codependent on him or to have him be codependent on them. Yeah. And I just wonder to what extent we can speculate that it's his prayer life uh, going back to Dave, your, your consternations with prayer are mine also. Yeah, I wonder if it's the prayer life that the father had for those boys that brought him to the place where he could let them go and not chase after them mm-hmm. and give them the space and give him the space from that toxic codependency. And so I think a lot of it is trying to find ways to be reformed into what it means to be priests. And I'm, I'm not saying that this term is wrong, but I think it's been absolutely devastated. I grew up in the spiritual father culture. Yeah. yeah. And most of that looking back is toxically codependent. Mm-hmm. Both people, the father and the spiritual son. And I'm just, it's making me wonder, like where Paul says in Corinthians, like some of you say you're of Paul and some say you're of Apollos. And he's like, this is not good. This kind of codependency is not healthy. Right. And so I think even the line grace to you and peace from God, the father and our Lord Jesus Christ, like it's not coming from me. I'm telling you about it, but I want you to know who this grace and peace is coming from. And it's not coming from me. Yeah. I think there's just, I want to mine the depths of, understanding what it means that we've created these codependencies and the gentle way to not break the codependency, but reform it. Because I think Chris, I think you've actually, you and I've had this discussion. It's possible, or we had it with Brad Jersak. It's possible to realize it's codependent and end it so fast. Both people were so secured in that, that you're, you're left completely abandoned in a world that you're not ready to face. And so there's got to be ways to like slowly ebb and flow out of the codependency into a more healthy kind of relationship. But just all that to say, hearing you guys talk, it dawned on me that I think a gr- one of the strongest underlying factors here is codependency between the clergy and the laity. Last words. Thank you, Bill, for that. I mean, the only comment I'll make before Brewer wraps us up is I think 
one of the tells, and again, I'm, I'm relying on McGilchrist here. One of the tells that we're still thinking managerially is we are asking how and expecting the answer to be something we would understand. And I think the part of the faithfully imaginative, hopeful awareness we're called to is that the how is something we never understand. So John Wesley, at the end of his life, he's writing to his brother, talking about how he says, he, he, among other things, he says, you know, I, I'm, ne- I'm not a believer. I never was. I'm not a Christian. I never was. I, I have no experience of God. I don't even have the, the conviction from reason that this is right. And then he says, I am born along. I know not how. I know not how. That is faithful awareness. The fact of the matter is you can map something that you can give a map of how it works. You know, how do we get out of a codependent relationship without destroying people? I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody will ever know. And you can draw a map. That's really fancy. That map will not map the reality because the reality is the infinite work of God in the endless complexity of human lives. And that we cannot map. We have no idea. Like, you know, how, how, how do children get here? How do children learn to speak? How do marriages last? How, do, how does language form? Like, how, how does the Eucharist feed me with Jesus? I mean, I can say things about it. I can give you a map. But that map is going to be terribly poor representation of the reality of the territory. The fact of the matter is, we don't know how. We know who is acting. We know who is acting. That's what we know. That's what we trust. God is acting here. And there will be a how. I mean, he, he's able to do it. I mean, the, the how of God is God. The how of God is the spirit. So we, we can trust that. But we can't trust our descriptions of the how. And that, that is the, the left hemisphere knowing that we, that we could come up with a how that would be explicable. And what's terrifying is you can come up with something that makes sense. It's just not accurate. Right? It, it, it's, it is consistent with itself, perhaps, but it's not consistent with the reality, the mystery of what God is doing. And I think that that is the key. Like we, we have to, we have to trust that, God's ways are not our ways. His how is deeper and higher and longer and wider than we can, we can possibly map. And that's a good thing. It's precisely because of that, that we have hope no matter what, whether we can see a way out or not, or not, right? God can make a way where there seems to be no way because we can only, you know, we can only make a how that's the size of our consciousness, the size of our awareness. But, you know, God's is infinite. Anyway, Brewer wraps up. Man, I don't want to say anything. I feel like I'm profaning a holy moment just by speaking. <laughs> well, that, that don't. I, I, I don't want this to be my sense is, and I, I don't want people to feel shamed by it. I mean, it's a, 
to feel shamed or disappointed in yourself is a very left hemisphere response to a criticism of left hemisphere awareness. Uh, but like to kind of recognize that, man, God's goodness is so much deeper and wider than, than we've known, than we've let ourselves know. Right. And I think what I'm kind of captured by, especially right now, still in the season of Easter, right, is that, I mean, so many of the stories after Jesus immediately or nearly immediately after Jesus' crucifixion and death are stories about people not just trying to make sense, but trying to map the how of how am I going to survive? How am I going to live in this? How am I going to give my life meaning in light of this? How am I going to not get killed? And Jesus' response, you know, showing up several times is don't be afraid. And I mean, our fears, our fear of maybe as pastors and priests, what does this mean for me if I can't map this for the people that are here? Fears, which can be so well-intended and genuine about them. Like I cannot see the how, so I, I, you know, I, I can't see certain things or I can see where some things will lead. So I need to intervene in a kind of controlling way that I think that don't be afraid, trust in the goodness of God who does know the how and whose ways aren't mappable by us and aren't going to be clear to us until the end is such a liberating word. And it's not just liberating for us when we think about our own lives, but I think it, and I think we see this to come back to the text. This is why, this is why Paul can speak in the ways that he is speaking Mm -hmm. because he trusts in the goodness of God. He knows who this God is. He's had this encounter with Jesus that allows him to talk in ways that says, I'm praying for you that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. I'm praying that prayer and I can pray that prayer, not just trusting that God hears me, but I can pray it in a way that doesn't dictate that I tell you what that will is, right? He's liberated and thus he's able to give a liberating word to them. And so, yeah, all of this seems just like very good news to me. Amen. All right. So next time we're going to pick up with 15, Colossians 1, 15, and delve into Paul's theology, which is, is truly breathtaking. Thank you, David. Thank you, Bill, for this, Christopher. And we'll, we'll see you guys again soon.